Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it speaks louder than the other words that sometimes flow through our lives. I thank you that it cuts to the heart. Lord, I pray that this morning you would do that for us, that you would remind us of your goodness. You would remind us of how you've entered into our situation, how you did not leave us on our own, but um, the God of the universe took on flesh um, so that we could be known and so that we could know him. Um, Father, I pray that you would um, use me as we get started, that you would speak through me, and that you would speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. So I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. It feels a little weird because I've been gone the last three weeks, so I'm kind of a fish out of water here. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember. This This is great. I, I miss you guys. Um, but we're getting to talk about something this morning that's very near and dear to my heart, and that's the idea of story. And it might go a little beyond what you normally think about when the idea of story comes to mind, but it's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. Um, And so if you've been around for very long, you've probably heard us talk about the story of God, which is our way of discussing the entire arc of Scripture, um, the entire story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration of God, creating a people for himself, redeeming them to himself, and ultimately restoring them um, despite the ways that we walk in our own ways. And so rather than kind of go through the acts of the story, I wanted to kind of do sort of a preamble to that. Like we talk about the story of God a lot and why we want to be formed by it. But why? Why? Why is that so important that it's a recurring theme in our life and in, in, in our uh, our culture as a church? And so, um, to, to sort of illustrate why, I want to I want to um, talk about this quote from an author named Michael Goheen, who wrote a book called The Drama of Scripture. He says, "Many of us have read the Bible as if it were merely a mosaic of little bits." Theological bits, moral bits, historical critical bits, sermon bits, devotional bits. But when we read the Bible in such a fragmented way, we ignore its divine author's intention to shape our lives through its story. All human communities live out of some story that provides a context for understanding the meaning of history and gives shape and direction to their lives. If we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture and it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. Idolatry has twisted the dominant culture story of the secular Western world. If, as believers, we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thoughts and actions, then our lives will manifest not the truth of Scripture, but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshippers. Kind of intense, right? The idea that so much can go wrong simply by losing sight of the bigger picture. Um, But it kind of, as I think about this, I often think about the story of God is meant to function for us like like a cipher, like something that decodes the world around us where we see all these things happening and we're like, oh, I understand how that how that fits into what's going on because I know what God says about me and I know how God made the world and I know what went wrong and I know ultimately what's going to fix it. But sometimes if we're not careful, like he's talking about, if we end up with this fragmented faith, the opposite starts to happen. We start using the world to decode the Bible and we're like, oh, well, I don't really understand what this passage means. Oh, but that thing in culture, that 
that value that everyone's excited about right now, that actually explains this part in the Bible now. And now I understand what it was meant to mean. Um, maybe we have just evolved in a way where we understand we understand God better than the people did back then. And so we start making that even subtly um, reversal in our own lives. Um, but I want to destigmatize this for us. Like, I don't want to start it too heavy because this isn't something that, like, you know, only a few people over here do, or once you do, like, you never come back from. It's honestly something we all do every day of our lives, if we're honest. Um, so it's nothing to hide or be ashamed of. And, and honestly, it's an invitation to actually dive deeper with God and to actually ask Him to come into these areas of our life and to be that story. Um, so as we get started, I want you to visualize something. So visualize just kind of a global view of the earth. You get closer, you see plants, animals, and water, soil, all the things that make up the planet. And you you start to see that there's this one animal that's a little bit different from all the others. They don't have hair. They do more actions than just eat and poop and procreate and sleep. They seem to be doing things together and at work together in this weird way and they seem to care about one another and like what's that all about and so um, Yuval Harari an author and professor um, at Hebrew University he was asked this question um, because he's a sort of a biological and also an anthropological um, professor and so these are his two areas of expertise and he said the best solution that I can offer is our imagination the ability not only to imagine things to yourself but to share your fictions, to invent and spread fictional stories. This is why we can cooperate in our billions, whereas chimpanzees cannot, and why we have reached the moon and split the atom and deciphered DNA, and they just play with sticks and bananas. So he goes on to kind of spin this out a little bit, talking about how we create stories for human cooperative flourishing. He says, these stories aren't actually a biological reality but it's a very powerful and convicting and benign fiction that helps us organize our political and legal systems in the modern world. Take, for example, the legal field. Most legal systems today in the world are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Take a human being, cut them open, look inside. You'll find the heart, kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we've invented and spread around the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they are still just fictional stories that we've invented. The same is true of the economic field. I can take this worthless piece of paper, go to the supermarket, give it to a complete stranger whom I have never met before, and get in exchange real bananas, when I can, which I can actually eat. Money, in fact, is the most successful story ever invented and told by humans because it is the only story everybody believes. So saying we willingly submit and live our lives under these stories, he has a pretty powerful conclusion if you caught it there. The conclusion is that they're all false. They're all fiction. And so the only thing that matters here is whether they're powerful enough to galvanize humanity towards solving their problems. See, his underlying presupposition is this idea of created meaning. 
that within the naturalist worldview, we have a limit. We have a closed system. We have an imminent frame, which means the only thing that we can know, the only thing that can exist, is what we can know with our five senses, what we can measure empirically. And so there's no way to appeal beyond that. So there's no inherent meaning. There's nothing that can say, this is what life is about. We're limited to our closed system. And so naturally, he takes that to the logical conclusion, all these stories are false. All meaning is created. If you're depressed by the fact that there's no inherent meaning, it's just up to you to go and create your own meaning. Um, which, I guess, is one way, but it's it's a terribly precarious place to, um, to found your life. So, we, if we do have this innate drive to create these stories... And it seems to be sort of universal. Like, it's not something where, like, that guy just kind of, somehow he's impervious. He just does whatever he wants, and he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about human rights. They don't affect his life. Like, if we're all kind of in this together, um, it kind of makes me wonder, what if the proliferation of these stories is not just a coincidence? What if we're actually scratching away trying to discover this inherent meaning that's outside of our closed system, that's outside of our imminent frame of what we can measure empirically? So, and if that is the case, if we're actually trying to scratch away at that, then examining these stories, examining these stories that are foundational to every aspect of our life becomes really the most important thing we could spend our time doing. Um, So our passage today finds a people in a very similar circumstance. Paul's writing to the church in Colossae, and it's a young church, mostly um, people who converted from paganism, from worship of the Greek gods, um, and from other uh, ritualistic um, traditions. And so they have a lot of, much like LA, they have a variety of different cultural influences. They have local folk Judaism that has been manifest there through the spreading of Judaism, as well as some of the Christians who were Jewish and then became Christians, and continuing the tradition of Judaism as Christians. And then you have the local Phrygian folk belief system, which Phrygia was that region that dates back to before the Trojan War. So there's a lot of history there, hundreds of of years old, of people worshipping the Greek gods, and um, more recently worshipping angels even, and ritualistic magic. And then you have Christianity. And so you have all of these three very powerful, very... um, storied and, and, and history belief, belief systems that have kind of merged together. And what's beginning to happen in the church in Colossae is you have some Christians who have become dissatisfied. They're saying, I need more. I need a more full spirituality. And they're kind of take, you know picking things from around them, cherry picking. And they're saying, well, I can take a little of that, I can take a little of that, and a little of that. And I can combine it all and make a faith that's really satisfying and feels full. Um, And so it's interesting because it was more of a varied um, problem they were having compared to the Galatians who we can tell from the text that they were struggling with one, basically one specific thing, which is the Judaizers coming in and saying, Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus the keeping of the law. So for Colossae, it's a little bit of that. It's a little flavor of that, but it's all of these other things, too, all thrown in the pot and mixed together. And so this movement in the church is urging them towards a syncretism where they just combine all these things in a way that works for them. 
is this idea of an a la carte worldview um, that's prevalent in our time as well, where we just kind of walk down the line and take things off the, uh, you know, off the shelf and add it to our cart, add it to our, um, our tray. And so Paul gives this call to us. It's, it's for them, but it's equally relevant to us. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits, and not according to Christ. See, what he's saying is that what's at stake is our freedom. So don't be taken captive. And you might feel free in whatever a la carte is happening, but you kind of have to take a step back and say, did I choose this? Am I pursuing this? Is this something that I saw as truthful and beautiful that I thought I need to run after that? Or is this just the climate that you're waking up in every morning? Is this something that you find yourself immersed in and daily sinking into, possibly, if you give way to it? Because that's what was happening in the church in Colossae. Is there was this movement of Christians who really thought, we need more, this isn't enough. And so they were sinking into all, everything that was happening around them rather than clinging to Jesus. So what are these captivating stories that, that have this power, that have this power to take us captive and pull us out of, um, of the truth? Um, and what are the problems they are trying to solve? Because that's equally important. Because we don't just do this for fun, right? We're trying to, like we said in the beginning, we're trying to galvanize humanity towards solving problems. So I want to start with the problems. And the problems we have in our text are kind of... Um, so we don't have a clear picture of the stories they're being tempted to believe because there are so many, because there's so much going on in Colossae. But we can kind of, based on Paul, how Paul addresses them, we can see what problems he was addressing, even though we don't know the contours of the story of what God they were believing in and this and that and what specific things they were being tempted into. So the first problem is fullness in life. And so we see from the first verse um, that Paul says, don't fall into philosophy and empty deceit. Don't fall into all of these other sources of wisdom and knowledge that promise you fullness. See, they were being tempted into this, um, and Paul rebuts them on the outset as being hollow and fraudulent. It's like, don't go after these things. The next problem is freedom from limitations. So this is the idea of personal limitations. Like, we all feel this need to overcome what holds us back. Um, And we all feel this need to progress in life. And so they did this according to human tradition, right? They looked at ritualistic Judaism, they looked at paganism, and they looked at Christianity. They were like, hey, there's some common themes here, things that we do to get. If If I add these things to my life, maybe it will solve my problems. Maybe it will pull me out of the flaws that I have that I hate, that I wish I could get, you know, be over, be done with. Um, and this is the idea of asceticism where if we can just abstain from giving in to our appetites, then we'll be okay and we'll be able to move forward. And specifically here, you see a lot of talk about circumcision. And I can imagine the church coming in, baptizing new believers, and then some of this, out, this influence coming in within the church for ritualistic um, for, for rituals and, and them being tempted to... So you were baptized, but that's not enough. Now you actually need circumcision, right? So that was took a lot of self-control to you know agree to do baptism. The next level of, self, is, of self-control is circumcision. That's how you can be really free from everything that holds you back 
from all of the, uh, the appetites that, that cling so closely to you, which is kind of crazy if you think about what circumcision is, convincing all these people that this was going to give them the freedom from what was holding them back. And then the last one is advancement from inadequacy. And so they were pursuing these elemental spirits, these deities, um, and Paul kind of it does a little dig at them because the word he uses here for correcting them about not giving into elemental spirits or not following elemental spirits is stoichia. And stoichia, like he could have used a million different words if he was just trying to say false gods or other deities or um, things like that. He could have used a million different words, but he says stoichia. And stoichia can mean earthly forces, it can mean basic concepts like rudimentary things, or it can mean other deities. And so he's here saying those things that you're pursuing to advance you from your feelings of inadequacy, they're actually basic, rudimentary, false deities that can't do what you're asking of them. So it's this idea that Jesus, is Jesus enough? And when we ask these questions, it's because we're concerned with, am I enough? Do I have enough? Is, is, is Jesus enough for me? And this passage is a good case case study for us because we address many of the same problems today. We just use different stories, right? We don't go after the Greek pantheon of gods or ritualistic Judaism or any of these things. We have more sophisticated intellectual means of dealing with these problems. And so for fullness of life, they sought fuller spirituality. We seek um, what's called expressive individualism, which is a term coined by sociologist Robert Bella. And when he was asked about what's the singular American culture, what unites us as a people, like when people in England or other Western cultures say, have that like thirst for America, they're like, yeah, America's awesome. What are they what are they observing in us? And he's like, it's expressive individualism. It's this idea that find your deepest desire, find your dream, embody it fully. Pursue your dreams, because after all, a dream is a wish your heart makes. <laughs> When you're fast asleep, in dreams you will lose your heartache. Whatever you wish for, you keep. Have faith in your dreams, and someday your rainbow will come smiling through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. So underneath that like very like magical song that like we all love, right, when you go to Disney, underneath that are some pretty bold promises when your heart is grieving like whoa like what is my dream going to do when my heart's grieving like that's that's a, a bold statement so i'm not saying don't dream or desire like i want to be clear that of all these stories we're going to go through today like these were formed for a reason like they serve our culture they're good for us i'm just saying don't like for this one in particular for expressive individualism Seeking fullness here is risky. It's risky because you're essentially depending everything that that song says. Your dream has to fix your heart when it's grieving. Your dream has to allow you to keep what you need. And if it can't, then you're left with nothing. See what happens when one dream conflicts with another. How do you decide which desire is deepest what if you're not sure what your dream is? What if it changes? What if it doesn't line up with what the world says you should be doing? What if you never reach your dream? Or what if you reach your dream and it's lost its luster completely? So 
the real tragedy happens when not only do we fall into this, but as was happening in the church in Colossae, we, we've combined it with our Christianity so much so that we're actually using Jesus to get our dreams. And when we don't get them, then we lose everything. So that's fullness of life. Expressive individualism is meant, if we give into it, if we put all our weight in it, because we're trying to get this fullness of life. Um, the next problem we're trying to fix is freedom from limitations. And we don't fall into all of these same ritualistic patterns that maybe they did. But we have the story of secular humanism, right? The call is fix yourself. You have the raw materials, you have what you need to answer. You are the answer to what ails you and what ails the world. Make good choices for the benefit of others, and we will all prosper. And again, I'm not saying these are bad things. Like, please do these things. Please make choices for the good of others so that we can all prosper. But if in them we are expecting those good deeds, those good choices for the benefit of others, to fix the underlying problem of our limitations, our flaws that cling to us that we can't seem to get past, if we're trying to fix those by doing all these things, then it's only going to end in disappointment. Because what happens when you run out of steam? Do those flaws come back? Are you no longer free from them? How do you stay motivated? The mornings that you wake up, you just don't feel like it. Like, I need to do me today. I can't handle what's going on with all these people. Especially if human rights is a created meaning, as we were talking about. Why bother? Because a lot of times this idea of secular humanism and naturalism are sort of like butted up together like puzzle puzzle pieces that don't really fit together. Um, Because one says, you're an incredible source of power and you're amazing you can do everything that the world needs. And the other says, there is no power. There is nothing but cells and dust and matter. And so... How do you decide what benefits other people when you're, when you're going along this pattern of secular humanism? How, how do you even have a framework for what you should do to serve someone? We can go with expediency, but then what is really... How do we even know what expediency is? How do we really know what ultimately our deepest need is? So remember, it's a closed system, so we can't appeal any higher than the material world. So... Finally, we have advancement from inadequacy. See, they sought to move on through worshiping more deities, packing the, you know, their, their lineup of, of deities to give them this sense of being no longer being inadequate. And how do we advance? So our culture is built around this idea of meritocracy, which basically means perseverance, hard work, and ability are rewarded with advancement to more opportunities. Prove yourself is the battle cry of meritocracy. Prove that you are what you say you are, and you will be given the keys to the kingdom. You'll be given everything you need to move up in the world and to have wealth, health, and happiness. And it does lead to flourishing for some people in some areas, but it can't advance us from these feelings and this reality of inadequacy. Because what about those who didn't have any opportunity to begin with? who didn't even have the first rung of the ladder, how are they meant to advance? 
What happens when we falter on the ladder? What happens when we're climbing our way up? We think everything's going great. And then all of a sudden, one of the rungs breaks and we fall all the way back down. Can this story of meritocracy restore us? See, the reality is there's no mechanism in here. It's, it's a, a cultural and economical system, but there's no mechanism for forgiveness within a meritocracy. So when, even though it's a good system that causes us to flourish and to grow up into who God has made us to be, it can't advance us from our feelings of inadequacy. It was never meant to. See, none of them are bad stories, like we've been saying. They're just limited. And they conflict with one another, where moment by moment you have to constantly swap in, swap out. And which hat am I wearing right now? Am I serving these people and putting them above myself, or am I following my expressive individualistic mindset and doing what brings my dreams to come true? Or am I, you know trying to climb the ladder and, you know, forgetting everything that's, you know, behind me in my wake. So we can accept these limitations. We can accept how they don't quite line up. We can accept how they fail us. Um, But it's like, it reminds me, so Lucy broke her wrist a week ago, and we didn't really know it at first because she puts on a brave face and she's very... You know, if you know Lucy, she's like, everything's great all the time, except when sometimes she doesn't treat us great. But other than that, everything's great all the time. Um, and so right after she broke it, we were kind of checking on her. We were saying, how are you doing okay? Are you, are you feeling better? Like five minutes, ten minutes later, we're like, is it feeling better now? Like kind of nodding your head because like as a parent, you just want everything to be okay and you don't want there to be a problem. And she was like, yeah, it feels better now. And we're like... Uh, I guess I'm going to choose to believe that, but I don't really know. But then she wouldn't complain about it. And this was while she was in Texas visiting her grandparents. So then a week later, she gets back. She puts just a little bit of weight on it and lets out the loudest shriek we've ever heard. Like, oh my gosh, it's broken. And she's been playing on it for a week. And now we'll finally get it sorted out. But just the idea that she was limping along with that like broken wrist trying to play trying to pretend like everything was okay trying not to be brought down into how how much it hurt that's what we're left with in this current paradigm of swapping in swapping out this fractured makeup of stories that we try to to you know push together to be something that can give us meaning and hope in our life that's the reality that we're living in so Paul here is pleading with us not to settle. He says, don't live according to these stories, but according to Christ. Um, But to do that, he has to answer these problems, right? The problems that we've called out in the text. Like, we can't just say, oh yeah, Jesus is the answer and move on. He actually has to answer these problems, and he does. So, first Paul addresses fullness of life. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the fullness that they've been seeking in spiritual sources of wisdom and knowledge, the fullness we seek in our expressive individualism, following our dreams, finding our deepest desires, those things we can all agree are hollow and fraudulent. I hope we've all gotten to that point where you've seen it not deliver what it promised it would, no matter how deep that dream felt. When those things are found hollow and fraudulent, Jesus is full and true. See, the fullness of deity, the fullness of all power, authority, wisdom, knowledge, meaning, and life is manifest in Jesus. It's manifest in the Christ, really, which 
before Jesus entered in human, into human history, the Christ pre-existed all of creation. Um, this, this verse actually points back to chapter 1, where Paul has this little miniature worship service where he's saying how amazing Jesus is. And it goes like this. He says, the image, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the body, the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Richard Rohr is a Franciscan friar and prominent Christian mystic and kind of just an all-around funny, quirky guy. But he has some really amazing thing, a really amazing name for the Jesus we see in this passage. And he calls him the cosmic Christ. So it's that idea that the eternality of Christ, the eternality of who Jesus was on earth, that pre-existed all of creation that was from eternity past, that literally spoke creation into existence. If you think of Jesus being the word of God that went forth over creation as the created work happened, and trees and animals and everything popped up, like that was Jesus going forth. Jesus is the logos, the meaning. The word logos literally means the meaning. So the meaning we're searching for is Jesus. This cosmic Christ that pre-existed all of creation that has been from eternity past dwells bodily. So that's the incredible, scandalous reality that's being communicated here. That the fullness of deity, the fullness of everything that we desire in life is manifest physically. The source of all wisdom, knowledge, meaning can be known personally. He continues, not only can it be, can it be known personally, you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So He's relational and He has filled you with His presence. He's with you. See, there's no greater fullness that you can seek out of the fullness of time, the fullness of meaning of everything that we desire has been poured out in our hearts. The fullness we desperately seek in Christ takes up residence in us. When our dreams and desires fail us, we know that He never will because He's always with us. So the next problem is freedom from limitations. Can Jesus really deliver us? In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. See, they sought to free themselves by physical circumcision, other rituals, other asks, acts that they might do to master their body and its appetites. And we similarly buy into the story of humanism where we're like, if we can just free ourselves from what holds us back, do what is needed to advance the human race, then we'll be good. But Paul's saying no amount of physical practice or effort will free you, and which is what we all felt, right? Like, we look at the world around us, at times we, we crumble under the weight of, of all of the pain, and we in, intuitively know that there's nothing we can do with in, in and of ourselves to prevent that from happening. So he says you actually need a metaphysical circumcision, not a physical one. You need the circumcision of Christ whereby the old self, old bondage, and old allegiances are cut away from outside of us and consecrating us to God. 
That's what we all crave. It's the circumcision of the heart um, that talks about in Ezekiel. We're actually, our, our heart, our cold, dead heart of stone is ripped out and we're given a new heart. He goes on, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through, the, through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So he doubles down on this line of reasoning going through the rituals that they're seeking hope in. The act of baptism in and of itself doesn't do anything. Right? Like It's an important thing that we do to proclaim what God has done for us, um, but it's ultimately communicating the deeper reality. The deeper reality that in Christ, we are buried with Him. So the only way to overcome your flaws is to die. That's what baptism is trying to communicate. You have to die to your old self. You die with Christ so that you can be raised to new life in Him. And baptism is a sort of a made-up English word that we didn't have. We wouldn't have had apart from the Scriptures. It means to be immersed and to come out changed. So either we're immersed in the humanism story where we're the captain of our own ship. We strive for a little while but give way to fatigue, selfishness, disillusionment. And that story that was supposed to free us, that promised that it would be the solution to our problems, it actually draws us deeper into that captivity. Because now not only do we see the problems, but we feel our own inability to solve them. Or the other solution is we are immersed in Christ and we come out changed. We're freed by the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The person once immersed in Christ is not the same person that resurfaces. Do you guys know that? The old self dies, and when you rise, you're proclaiming that you're new in Christ. So our freedom's not based on efforts, practices, but his finished work. So we don't lose heart when we fail. And... We have power far beyond anything that is offered by a naturalistic, humanistic worldview because we press on in Him who has given us resurrection power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead in our mortal bodies. So lastly, he deals with this question, this problem of advancing from inadequacy. You who are dead in the trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh... And it's cutting off the sentence halfway. But we have to dwell there for a while. You see, they sought to advance from inadequacy through adding these deities to the lineup. We try through meritocracy. We use a good thing to advance us from feeling inadequate, from from being inadequate in various ways. Paul says it's worse than we think. You feel inadequate because there's a deeper underlying problem that you're scratching away at. You feel inadequate because of we are ultimate, what he says here, we're dead. Which is a bold claim in this day and age to say we, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. It's offensive. Even as I was writing this, do you know how many times I wrote and rewrote this section? I was like, until my heart loves this, I can't preach it. See, the reason is, we are in our trespasses. And the word for trespass is a funny word. It's a Greek word for obviously doing something wrong. But 
it has this connotation to it of flowing, passing through, idly by, carelessly, overstepping boundaries, assuming ownership of things that aren't ours, and ultimately hurting people as we do that. So for this portion, it's really important to be reminded of the story of God. Like this particular issue, when we're in a culture who would do everything in their power to reject this claim, we have to be reminded of the story of God. The story that God created us good. He gave us life. He gave us love. He gave us purpose. He walked with us in the cool of day. We were his children. We had everything that we needed. He was our king. We didn't have to be afraid of what was going to happen in our life. He given us the purpose of joining him in creation. He created this beautiful world and he says, go forth and multiply, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take what I've made and continue to make. Continue to bring me glory by joining me in this. And rather than doing that, joining him in that, we said, maybe we have a better idea. Maybe you're not actually... Maybe there's the secret in this back room that you're not telling us about that would actually be the secret to fullness of life. And maybe we can just kind of step over there and see a little bit and see what happens. Which the reality of that was we didn't trust our Father who had only given us what we needed, who had only ever lavished us with His love. Like if you can imagine the most loved the most at peace, the most joy you've ever experienced in life. Can you imagine walking in that daily? For that just to being the default. Like you didn't have to wonder, is today going to be challenging? Is today going to be rough? You were just there. You woke up and, and he was there. So that's ultimately what we're talking about. Rather than trust him, we decided to trust ourselves and reject him. See, this is actually cosmic treason at the highest level in that we inverted the very foundation of life. Instead of loving the giver of life, we made ourselves the source of all life and meaning. That created meaning, that's a subtle, if you look underneath it, it's saying, I'm God. Like, that's what we're whispering. That's what's being whispered in the intellectual circles of the world where we've figured out like, oh, we can just press on if we assume that there's no greater meaning and just create our own. So this ongoing act of rejecting the giver of life, it results in death. Unsurprisingly, um, we downshift sometimes talking about the world's brokenness, right? Like, we can all look around at the world around and say, yes, this is not acting as it should act. Like, all of creation can observe that together. That is one thing that all of humanity is united in. But we've become very good at denying our own complicity, even in the church. We just downshift and say, well, the world's a, the world's a, and even we can even worship through it sometimes, which is in some ways a greater issue where we just say, well, the world's broken, so we need Jesus. No, I'm broken. When life quiets down, when we're commuting to work, we're falling asleep at night, we know, right? 
Why does this weight seem to follow us everywhere we go? Why can't we be free of it? This feeling that we're not enough? Why can't we just move on it to something move on from it to something else? Why isn't our career track working? Why isn't our home life track working? See, no matter what we pursue, nothing removes it. And this reminded me of a recording I heard a while back between a, a mom entrepreneur. I'm told that the mom mom mompreneur word is not supposed to be used. It can be offensive to I don't know. Somehow limits what a mom can I don't know. Anyways, a mom who is also an entrepreneur, um, one of which I'm married to, um, was having this this meeting with an executive coach who was kind of more like a therapist in the recording, but it was, it was really interesting. She was basically telling him, he said, what do you want to talk about today? Like, what's, what's a struggle for you? And the place she immediately went was, I just feel guilty all the time. When I'm at work, I feel guilty that I'm not spending enough time with my kids. When I'm at home, I feel guilty that I'm not progressing at work and that I'm not more, pre- and that even when I am at work, I'm not present because I'm thinking about my kids. When I'm at home, I'm not present because I'm thinking about work. And so he reads her this quote by a writer named Sharon Salzberg The feeling of guilt or hatred directed towards oneself lacerates. When we experience a strong feeling of guilt in the mind, we have little or no energy available for transformation or transcendence. We are defeated by the guilt itself because it depletes us. We also feel very alone. Our thoughts focus on our own feelings of worthlessness. I'm the worst person in the world, only I do terrible things. So the word, the key word here is, is lacerate. He's saying that when we feel this guilt, we, it's us lacerating ourselves. It's us cutting away at ourselves. Um, it's... This, this underlying reality where we feel this weight that needs to be removed. And so the only solution is us chastising ourselves, beating ourselves up, saying, you should have done better. Why weren't you there? Why weren't you there for them when they needed you? And so many deaths have entered our lives through our trespasses and those of others. So a lot of times this laceration isn't even because something we did wrong. It's generally living in a world that is sick from death. And, you know, for me, this idea really hit home because I was like, man, I, I resonate with her. I'm not, even, I'm not even trying to split my time. I mean, I feel that, that same weight because when I'm at work, I constantly feel guilty that I'm not spending time with the kids when I'm commuting home and the train doesn't come soon enough I'm like man I should have walked out the door quicker like maybe I could have caught them before bedtime or you know they're trying to call me and I gotta run out to the patio so I don't let them down so I can take their call and all of these things and, and then the reality is when I'm at home I resonate a lot with what she's saying I'm wondering if did I choose the right job? It did. Am I putting my family through something that I don't have to? To did I go down the right path?
And <clears throat> unfortunately, so preface this by saying I'm very excited to now be an elder here and to serve you guys. But unfortunately, that became another thing that I could use to lacerate myself. See, maybe if I could feel like I was leading well enough, caring for you guys, then I wouldn't feel inadequate. And so it just drives you into that cycle of beating yourself up over and over again. And I know this is kind of a tense moment, so if no one's up for it, no problem. But I wanted to see if anyone is willing to share some of the issues in your life that make you self-lacerate over in that we might be free from them. Josh? Yeah, what areas in, in your life do you, you feel inadequate and because you feel inadequate you beat yourself up about it? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, I actually just wrote my story for DNA and shared it, and kind of one of the major themes of the story is that I feel inadequate in most areas of my life. Mm. Uh, I was actually telling Danielle last night, like, my orientation towards life in myself is you are not enough and you need to be better and you need to be better now. Mm. So every thought I have is either about working out and dieting, reading books about agile project management and recruiting so I can get better at work, or it's redesiring guys, read Tozer, and you suck at the Christian. Why aren't you praying enough? Why aren't you reading enough? Um, you know, it's just like in every area that like that is the orientation of my life. Yes. Not enough, not enough, not enough. And the only thing that actually helps is being community Genesis Club, community, in DNA, and having to go through your story and seeing the longer track record and saying, oh wait, there has been growth, and you have been getting better, but it's so hard to, it's so hard to be aware of that and appreciate that in the life, in the life living today, in this season. In this season, it feels like... I'm sitting at the breaker on the beach and the wave just comes in, drowns and goes out and comes in, and that's just, and it's my fault I'm there, and I need to get better about getting ahead of the water more often than not. Thanks for sharing. Anybody else? Ashley? Yeah. In the back? Um, I'd say genuinely I feel most guilty uh, in the area of my relations with other people. Like, you know, I've been in many situations where I'm either like, you know, tired or hungry, whatever. And like, you know, I, like, about 90% of my friends, I laughed out at the elderly mm. at least once. Yeah. So I look back at those moments. Mm. 
Yeah, like if I could treat them better, they would have felt more loved. And, yeah. Teddy? Well, I just think it's just not in every area. I find it all too good. Yeah. Um, but my kids are great. Mm. Really, you always, you know, when I recognize that, it's how I also recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, really, you know, outside, but great. Feeling, 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 I've heard multiple say that multiple people say that you do an amazing job at that. So, <laughs> which is kind of reveals that oftentimes what we feel the worst about is actually some of our strengths, which is kind of a you know sad way that we do that to ourselves. But yeah, I definitely hear that. Was there more you want to say about that? I like the word lacerate because I saw as soon as you said that I felt the I lacerate David and John. And as soon as I
Like we're so cut up and lacerated that we can't even receive the healing balm when people speak the word of God over us. Yeah, that's good. Anybody else? Sometimes underneath there, it's a, I am in charge, and so if I could do things right, then everything would be perfect, and yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Anybody else? Brad? I was going to say exactly what Sarah said, what I yeah. experienced, except I'm not an extrovert. <laughs> but everything else is like, even the tears. Mm-hmm. Hard adjustment. Yeah, I'm just having a sense of pressure of, yeah, I could be doing more, or, or know more, be relatable more, have a rhythm more, settled more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, thank you guys all for sharing. That was great. Um, this isn't the end of the story. Like, we've sat here for a really long time now, in the, the death. Um, But God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, we are actually made alive, right? If we're in Christ, those things that we lacerate ourselves over are not true anymore. We don't have to self-lacerate because He was literally lacerated for us. The chastisement that was put upon him has brought us peace. And by his wounds, not our own, we're healed. Amen. So hear this. In Christ, you are forgiven. You are not condemned. We were dead because we rejected the giver of life. But he died so that we might be alive again. Sadly, the executive coach's solution was to replace these feelings of guilt with feelings of remorse, which is a little more palatable. See, this detachment is a common idea in Buddhism and Stoicism. Whenever you feel guilty, just replace it. Just don't think about it. Make it a different feeling. And maybe, eventually, you'll be so cold and withdrawn you won't feel pain at all which is unfortunately, that's why Stoicism is sort of, the connotation of Stoicism is that you're cold and unfeeling and shut off from the world. So, and on top of that, this detachment doesn't actually resolve the problem. So if the guilt wasn't the problem, the laceration wasn't the problem, the death was the problem, how does detachment make us alive? See, in Christ we don't detach. We engage. So anytime that you're tempted to self-lacerate, you say, no, he's already taken it for me. I'm alive in him. He received it so that we can receive him. 
the inadequacy. I thought I was advancing my career, my family, for me, even advancing in the church, becoming an elder. We thought it would fix, but the reality is now it can finally be removed in Christ Jesus. We're made alive in Him. See, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. And you have to take a step back and say, how did Jesus triumph, right? We've been talking about his death. He was lacerated for us. He was lacerated so we could be forgiven and not walk in that anymore. But that also is not the end of the story, right? He overcame the grave, cementing every claim he ever made. The incarnate cosmic Christ come to be with us, risen for us, bloodshed for us. If you have doubts coming away from this morning, if, you, if you've been walking in doubts like conversations that I've had with people recently if you feel the need to investigate further, do okay this is a call to dive deeper investigation is is Jesus offers come deeper into him and the resurrection is the place to begin it is the center point of all human history whereby we have physical evidence that the God of the universe actually entered into the human narrative and did something insane on top of all of the other miracles, the evidence that Jesus was God, the resurrection was proof. And if you wonder, do the historical accounts really support this claim? They do. We can give you resources. Please come and ask us if you're going through these questions yourself. And please investigate this stuff for yourself. Because ultimately, you have to deal with the resurrection. If you're wondering about Jesus, you know he was a person in human history. That's not debatable. You know that he died. Did he rise? Seek it out for yourself. So you might be thinking now, well, I feel good. I feel much better knowing that I don't have to self-lacerate anymore. But what do I do now? How I'm going to go out there tomorrow and there's going to be all these stories that are coming back at me. All these people telling me to follow my dreams find my meaning to do what's right for my neighbor isn't it in itself without any motivation behind that or to climb that career ladder and continue to being the best you can be if we know those don't profit or deliver us from our real problems how do we not fall into them and the answer is given in the text he says therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If you have received Jesus, walk in Him. That's it. Just keep walking. Having begun in Christ, having begun in the gospel, don't depart for a new foundation. So the imagery here is of foundations and roots. And I was thinking about the Forgins building their house. And can you imagine? (laughs) See, she laughs. You can imagine if someone was building a house for you. You walk up and kind of surveying the work they've done for you. They've poured the slab. Maybe there's some electrical work, some plumbing done. I guess there has to be if the foundation's already laid. Um, But you look around and you say, there's no walls. Where are the walls? 
why have you done such a shoddy job and not built walls on my house? And you become angry and you storm off. You fire the builder. You say, you know what? I'm going to go down. I'm going to get me one of those rusted out derelict double wides that have walls and a ceiling, place to lay my head, and I'll be fine. Never mind that, you know, those are built on a floodplain and the flood is coming. Um, maybe too soon, maybe not timely in that metaphor. Um, anyway, or you've planted a garden. After 24 hours, you look for the plants to sprout. You come outside and you say, there's nothing, what a waste. Rather than wait and see, you rake the bed, rip up all the tiny roots of the potentially fruitful vegetation, and you start again. See, the tragedy is that that's daily what the world is asking of us. Rip up your foundation. Rip up your roots. If it's not working now, if you're not feeling it, if, 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 today, if yesterday was hard, and it was a little hard to see how God was leading you, how the Spirit was moving in your life, then it must be because He's not, so just start over and do something different. And what a tragedy that is. Can you imagine if they gave up on their house and was just like, well, there's no walls yet, so I guess we'll find something else. Not realizing the literal physical inheritance that is represented in the work that God's allowing them to do and building a bigger space for their family. I can't plead with you enough. Don't depart. Go deeper. Go deeper in Him. See, because when we truly see the implications of what we've been talking about this morning, the end is thanksgiving. And we're compelled towards something like the scene we see in C.S. Lewis, The Last Battle. Tears streaming from our eyes, we can say to Jesus, I have come home at last. This is my real country. This is my real foundation. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up and come further in. And as we enter a time of response, there are lots of questions you can be processing. This is a time to ask the Holy Spirit, convict my heart. Where am I living a different story? And is that story solving these problems? Is it giving us fullness? Is it freeing you from limitations? Is it advancing you from your inadequacy? Will you trust Jesus to give you His fullness, free you from yourself, forgive you to a new life in Him? Have you received that He was lacerated so you could be made alive? So tomorrow you'll wake up. You'll wake up with a choice. You can either be deluded and taken captive by plausible arguments, or you can pursue Jesus, mining the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, I thank You for this truth this morning, and I pray that You would apply it to our hearts. I pray that You would call us deeper into You, call us further up and further in, into Your country, into Your kingdom, Lord, that You inaugurated on earth when You entered our timeline, when You lived the life that showed us um, what the kingdom looks like. And you died 
to remove our guilt and shame and bondage. And you rose to give us new life and to empower us into your kingdom and the life that you've made for us. Father, I pray that you would continue to encourage us into our weeks, into our days, tomorrow, the next day. This would be a call on all of our lives to go deeper in you, Lord. I thank you for this morning and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.